Welcome to Prayer and Fasting, a Christian Bible study podcast. My name is Kathleen Marks, and I'll be your hostess today. I'm so happy that you've decided to tune in and join us as we are exploring the book of Esther. Now, before we begin, I want to give some background on what is taking place during this time period. You have a king. Now, different translations call him different names. Some call him Ahasuerus. And by the way, I'm not a professional at pronunciation, so it's either Ahasuerus, Ahasuerus, Ahasuerus. I've heard it many different ways, but either your translation has that name for this king or Xerxes. Now, Ahasuerus is the old Persian or Hebrew name for the king, and Xerxes is the Greek name for the king. But whatever your translation has him named as, we're talking about the same man. And of course, when you conquer more lands, you get more names because the people give you a name in their language. Now let's begin in chapter one. I'm going to be reading from the New International Version. It says, This is what happened during the time of Xerxes, the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa, and in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes, and the nobles of the provinces were present. So these are very important people that the king is entertaining. And the reason that he has called them to a banquet is because he is going to be trying to convince them to invade Greece. He wants to expand his territory, and that is where his eye is on conquering next. So he has to get these military leaders and princes and nobles of the provinces on board with this idea and have their backing in order to make his takeover of Greece successful. Let's continue in verse 4. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Let's stop right here for a moment. So the king is showing off his riches. He's trying to get these men on board with his idea to invade Greece. And he is doing everything that he can to impress them, help them have a good time, and help them agree to his plan. Verse 9. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown, in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. So let's stop here for a minute. So a couple of things have happened. The king is drunk on the wine, okay? His own wine that he's been serving to everyone else. He drank too much. Likely, what was he doing? He was trying to show off to these men. He's probably telling them, 
his wife is the most beautiful in all the land. And of course, you know, their communications weren't as great as ours are now. So they had not seen this queen. And he is excited to show her off to these men and show his power, basically. And contrary to that, of course, I'm sure the queen probably knew that he had been drinking and he was in, quote, high spirits from wine and didn't really feel like being shown off to these men and paraded around in front of them like a pig at a county fair. In fact, it's my understanding that at the time when the king wanted to drink, he would send his wife away and bring in the concubines. So actually, this was a disrespectful measure on the king's part to bring his wife's status down to that of a concubine and have her shown off in front of the men while they're all drunk. So I want to examine Vashti a little more closely. If you're familiar with the Bible, um, in Daniel chapter 5, there's a story of a king. Uh, He's throwing a banquet, similar to what we're seeing in the beginning of Esther, and he's drinking wine out of these goblets with his wives and his concubines, and a hand appears on the wall and writes a message. In that story, the king's name is Belshazzar. He's the king of Babylon. Belshazzar's daughter is thought to be Vashti. Now, it doesn't say it explicitly in the Bible, and we can't confirm it historically, but many historians and students of Judaism believe Vashti was Belshazzar's daughter. So if that were true, that would mean that she was a Babylonian princess. Now, at the end of that story in Daniel, we find out that King Belshazzar is slain, and Darius the Mede takes over his country. So according to Jewish folklore, Darius took pity on Vashti and gifted her to his son Ahasuerus. So if this supposition is correct, these two are inexplicably intertwined. King Ahasuerus's father being responsible for the death of Queen Vashti's father. And it's also interesting to note in Daniel chapter 5, they talk about the golden goblets that King Belshazzar is using to drink out of and that they were taken from the Lord's temple. And I think we can infer, it doesn't say for sure, but I think we can infer that when Darius the Mede invaded and Belshazzar was killed, he probably took those golden goblets for himself as plunder. And perhaps the reference to the golden goblets, each one different from the other, that Ahasuerus has at his own banquet is referring to these golden goblets that have been stolen out of the Lord's temple. And so it's just interesting, the interconnection between these two books of the Bible, two famous stories, and two different people, Vashti and Ahasuerus, and how they came to power. So you kind of feel for Vashti in this instance. Um, Certainly, there was probably not any love between her and Ahasuerus, And he has called her in to display herself before all of these drunken men, which was an insult to her. So she feels that she's going to embarrass him back and refuse to come. And that was quite the scandal in the day, quite the spectacle of the banquet. And it had to be met with a strong reaction from the king. So not a great time for her to display her contempt for him. And that is what it was. It was her contempt for this king, whom 
Obviously, she did not choose for herself, did not love, and she did not want to be embarrassed by. So on the other side of the coin, we have looking back in Genesis, the idea that women were created to be a helpmate to the man. So when God set up the household and the family unit, he put the man in charge and the woman is supposed to be the helper. Now, obviously, with the way that these two had come together, Queen Vashti was not interested in being the helper to this king. And perhaps she was looking for an opportunity like this to embarrass him because she resented him. I'm not really sure. The Bible doesn't say, but I can only imagine the hatred she must have felt for him. And having picked this time to embarrass him in front of all of the nobles and princes and military leaders, she pretty much sealed her fate uh, from doing it right now because obviously we know no good can come from embarrassing your husband, especially in front of people he is trying to impress. So let's continue on in verse 13. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king, Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Mirez, Marcina, and Memukan, the seven nobles of Persia and Media who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. According to the law, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. Then Memukan replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. So let's stop right there. So what are these what are these men saying? They're saying, of course, it already has become well known what the queen has done. She's embarrassed the king in front of these very famous high up military leaders and nobles and princes and in front of their wives because they were at her own banquet. Quite the scandal of the time, of course. And as we all know how gossip spreads, that will get out into all the kingdom of what she has done. And so what these men are saying, I think, or, you know, I can infer probably that they're afraid their own wives are going to take to heart what she has done and think that they don't have to obey them. And so they want the king to come down hard on her with some kind of edict that will put in the minds of all the women that they should be obeying their husbands. Let's continue on in verse 19. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all the vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice, so the king did as Memukan proposed. He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, and to each people in their own language, proclaiming that every man should be ruler over his own household, using his native tongue. Now the Bible isn't clear what happened to Queen Vashti. 
many people hold the idea that the king gave her a divorce and just divorced her. I don't think so. I don't think that's how it worked in that day. Not only had she embarrassed the king in front of all of the nobility, she embarrassed him in front of the entire kingdom. And I think to deal with that situation, he probably had her put to death. It doesn't say. That's my personal opinion. But I think one of the reasons that we can assume that she was put to death also, later on in the story, we see that Queen Esther is afraid to go into the king without being summoned. And I think that's because it had become well known what happened to Queen Vashti when she did something the king didn't like. Um, And that's just my personal opinion. Again, maybe I'm wrong. But I I truly do not think she was given a divorce after embarrassing him in front of all the kingdom. No, I think she was put to death. One interesting thing I think that we can note from the end of chapter 1 is that, yes, in spite of the fact that these men did not want their own wives to backtalk them based on what Queen Vashti had done to the king, um, they seem to have knowledge that the breakdown of the family unit would make the country weak. It would make the lands weak. And what are they trying to do? They're trying to take over Greece. They want to do an invasion of Greece. And in order to do this, you need strong family units. You need men to be able to leave their families, women to be able to take care of the children. You need everything kind of in working order. And when you have, what? It, how did it put it? It put it in verse 18. It says, there will be no end of disrespect and discord. And that is true. When you have When you have things out of order in a family unit and the woman trying to become the head over the man, you do end up with no end of disrespect and discord. And knowing that, they needed to be a strong nation in order to achieve their goals. They had to put a stop to this. I think another important lesson we can learn from Vashti's disobedience to her husband, the king, is that submission requires a trust in God to provide, to protect, to supply when you are living out your role as a woman in a marriage, submitting to your husband. It's not enough to say you'll submit when you agree with what he says, or you'll submit to requests that are reasonable, or you'll submit to requests and ideas that align with what you think you should do. That's really not the definition of submission. Again, I know this is not a popularly held belief today, but we do look to the Bible as Christians for how we are supposed to conduct ourselves. And I do want to jump ahead here to Ephesians, the very famous passages where they're talking about wives submitting to their husbands. If we look in Ephesians 5, verse 21, it states, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And those are verses 21 through 25. And I wanted to read those briefly. I know we're skipping ahead to the New Testament, but this is the way God has set up a marriage, a union between 
a wife, and a husband. And most people, of course, quote the part about wives submitting to their husbands. But when you continue on in the passage, and it talks about husbands loving their wives just as Christ loved the church, Christ loved the church so much that he was willing to die for her. So each person, the man and the woman, has a role in the marriage. You can't have two heads, right? I mean, people try. Someone has to be the head and someone has to be the body, okay? That's just how it works. Have you ever tried to dance with someone and you're trying to lead and they're trying to lead? Someone has to lead. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. You're not really going to get anywhere if you're both trying to lead or you're going to be all over the place and it's going to look ridiculous. In order for it to work properly, someone has to be the head, someone has to be the body, someone has to be the one over the other, just as Christ is over us. So the man is over the woman in a union, in a marriage. And I just want to bring that up because I think today we are confused as a society about what the role of the man is and what the role of the woman is. And when we look to the Bible to recenter ourselves on how things were set up, on how we should conduct ourselves, this is how our family should be set up. And this is how our family should be operating. I think one of the reasons that people get upset by this passage is because they put their own ideas into it that it is not saying. It's not saying wives submit to your husbands and husbands can act however they feel like acting. No, it says husbands should love their wives just as Christ loved the church. And it doesn't say women should submit to all men. That's not what it says. It says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. So the Bible is pretty clear about how our marriages should work and when they are working properly with each person knowing their roles, it will be a more successful marriage than us trying to do it our own way. And I can hear you already. I can hear your thoughts. You're thinking, Kathleen, I can't do this. I can't fulfill my role submitting to my husband because he doesn't know his role to be the head of the household. He doesn't act like that. Or maybe it's reversed. Maybe you're thinking as a man, you can't be the head of your house because the wife won't let you and she seems to have control of everything. So what do you do when your spouse is not fulfilling their role Does that mean that you don't have to fulfill yours? Does that mean that you let them change the laws that God has set in place? No, I don't think so. I think you still need to step into your role in order for them to be able to acquiesce and fall into theirs. So if you and your spouse are both Christians, hopefully it will be easier for each one of you to begin stepping into your roles as it is outlined in the Bible, since hopefully both of you believe that the word of God is true. Now, what do you do if you're married to someone that is not a Christian and they don't have the same beliefs as you? Are you supposed to still maintain these roles that are mentioned in the Bible? My answer would be yes. I think that you are called to obey the Bible when you are a Christian, regardless of what your spouse believes. And I think we can see this in the passage from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, which I'll read right now. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word... They may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. 
Your beauty should not come from outward adornment such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham, and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right, and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives, and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. So right away in this passage, I could see how some women would be offended by the term weaker vessel or weaker partner, um, whatever your translation might say, but I'm not going to get into it today. However, if you go to the original translation that was in Greek, that phrase can be understood in a myriad of ways. Because that passage is in the husband section, Peter is talking to the men to treat their unbelieving wives with special care. It says, treat them with respect as the weaker partner or weaker vessel and as heirs with you. And when you go to the original translation in Greek, when it talks about the weaker vessel, um, we can also think of it as a fragile piece of pottery maybe a family heirloom. And how would you treat a fragile piece of pottery that is a family heirloom? You would treat it with special care. You would take very good care of it. You would be gentle with it. You would respect it. You would admire it. You would not be rough with it. And I believe that is the intent of this passage. In the same way that women should submit to their husbands, husbands need to love their wives and respect their wives and treat them with special care. You know, there's a there's a give and take relationship here. A proper marriage is a reflection of Christ's love for the church and the woman is to be the church and the man is to be a reflection of Christ and his love for the church. And I don't think any conversation about husbands and wives fulfilling their roles to one another would be complete without talking about prayer for our spouses. It's interesting because a lot of people don't have to be told to pray for their children, but when you ask about how much they pray for their spouse, they kind of fumble a little bit. I think we can imagine needing extra care and extra protection from God for a tiny child or even a grown child that you've seen grow up before your eyes, but when we think about praying for a grown man or a grown woman, We tend to just leave them to their own devices and leave them to themselves, don't we? And I think it's very important in a properly working marriage for each spouse to be praying for the other one daily. I've always said in order for a man and wife to have a successful marriage, God needs to be in control. Really, when we're fulfilling our roles, neither one of us is in control. You're submitting to God's plan for your marriage, and you're submitting to His will for your lives together as one flesh. So in this day and age, make sure you're praying for your spouse. Make sure you're praying for their protection. Make sure you're praying for their sound mind. Make sure you're praying for their happiness and their health and a multitude of other things that God will lead you in the spirit to pray for when you come to Him. But whatever you pray for, just make sure you're doing it on a consistent basis 
I'd say daily basis. We do have an enemy running around trying to dismantle our marriages. And in order to combat that enemy, we need to be praying for one another, shoring our marriages up, ensuring that we're including God in our plans, in our lives, in our relationships, so we can withstand the plans of the devil. Now I'm out of time for today, but join me next time as we go through Esther chapter two. May God bless you and keep you until next time.